Generally speaking, okay, generally speaking, it's good and healthy for a person to question things, right? Like it's not, it's not bad or unhealthy to be skeptical. And sometimes I think the word skeptic is thrown out like a pejorative. Like it's something that is altogether not good. That's not the case. Like, and I can demonstrate that. There are at least three different ways this morning. At least it's not comprehensive. It's meant to get our minds thinking. There are at least three different ways to question something. And we see that when we think about the same question being asked three different ways. Okay? So one way, let's do that. Three, three ways to ask the same question. All right? One way to question things is from the posture of intellectual curiosity. All right? So it's like that scene in Princess Bride, like where, you, where you get overwhelmed and so you want to know more. So it's like that scene in Princess Bride when the swordsman and Igor Montoya is bested in this duel with the man in black and he's just in awe because this doesn't happen very often. And so he, he's forced to ask the question, who are you, you know? And, and uh, he doesn't find out, I must know, you know? Um, we see this kind of questioning in the Scriptures. When Jesus calms the storm and the sea, the disciples ask, who is this man that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this man, right? So you can question something. You can, you can find something impressive. You can see something happening and you, and you can want to know more about what's going on. You can question something out of a sincere desire to get to the truth of a, of a particular matter. You can also ask the same question, though, out of a position of doubt. And that's not always bad. It's not always bad, right? Like, if someone claims an authority over you that isn't theirs, you should not just blindly follow that authority. There is a way to ask, who are you? way to ask that question as a clarifier, to make sure that the person in question has the authority that they claim that they have, right? Like, if my kids are at some event with one of their teams at the district, like, it's a baseball clinic, softball clinic, basketball clinic, and I show up to pick them up afterwards, and the person who's in charge doesn't recognize me, I like it when they ask me, and who are you? Like, Jack, who is this, right? I like the clarifier here, because I don't want them just giving my son to anyone. I, I'm the one with the, the actual authority to take my children. But there's a third way to ask the same question, right? So you can, you can have sincere desire to get to the truth of the matter. You can have a, a doubt, a clarifier, to make sure the person in question has the authority they have. But there's a third way that has more to do with not ever being willing to relinquish authority. And who are you, right? Who are you to tell me what to do? You know, someone with right authority comes along and tells us something that's absolutely in their stewardship to tell us. And we respond out of anger. Like It's absolutely in their purview to make an authoritative statement on this. And we respond out of anger. Why? Because we don't like giving over our authority. We have a problem with their identity precisely because we don't like the idea of someone having authority over us. And I think often the reason we have such a hard time with the identity of Jesus the claims that the Scripture makes about who He is and what He's done for us can at times be because we don't want to give in as it relates to the authority of Jesus. We've got a problem with authority. We don't want to give Him control. But if, he's, if He is who He says He is, we have no choice. This is part of what John the disciple is writing in this Gospel account. This is going to be 
a major portion of his argument to us, if Jesus is standing there, risen from the dead, instructing us, telling us that life is found in him, teaching us, right? What are you going to do about that? That's the idea. What are you going to do? Just decide not to grant him authority? And this is a crucial question, both for someone who grew up in the church and someone who grew up outside of the church. Both for those who grew up from within even gospel-proclaiming, historically orthodox churches, and those who grew up outside of the church. We all have ways that we can attempt to kind of hedge or minimize the authority of Jesus. And it's a theme that, that our text this morning addresses because here we find a group of people that come to question John. But what's the question behind their question? Like, what are they really motivated by? Are they, we need to ask, like, are they asking out of gen, genuine intellectual curiosity? Like, they've been impressed by John's ministry, and so they're coming and they're saying, who are you? I must know. Are they operating out of understandable doubts where they simply need a clarifier? Like, need to make sure that things are in order here? Or, is there a hardness of heart that goes further than all of that, that goes deeper than all of that? And so the text is divided up in such a way that we can actually see that. We can actually see the motivation of those who are questioning John the Baptist's claims and ministry. Here John is asked two kinds of questions. Okay, Two kinds of questions. And that's the outline for the text this morning. One of these questions actually leading to the other. So in this set of verses, we find a question of identity, verses 19 to 23, a question of identity, and then a question of authority, verses 24 through the rest of this section. Let's begin with this question of identity, starting in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Just to get our Johns straight. Again, here you have a different John from the author. You have John, the author, who I have argued is John, son of Zebedee, the disciple. Okay? But he's writing about John the Baptist, a different John, who here is giving testimony about Jesus. What does giving testimony mean? I, I talked about this for the last couple of weeks, but in this context, we need to see, actually, there's kind of a courtroom situation here in which you have this delegation sent from the Sanhedrin. This is, this is essentially the Jewish Supreme Court of the day to ask John a series of questions. And I think the most obvious w way uh, in this context to understand the Jews sent the priests and Levites to ask is to equate, and we see this in John, the Jews largely with this Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was largely under the control and influence of the high priest. So it makes sense priests and Levites who served in the temple in various ways were sent on the Sanhedrin's authority. And so this delegation sent from the Sanhedrin primarily comes to ask this question initially. Who are you? Who are you? A question of identity. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So John appears to have discerned already up front a little bit of their motives at the front end. They ask, who are you? And his immediate response is to say who he is not. He doesn't tell him who he is. Because he knows what they, what they want to ask him. He tells him who he's not. He doesn't have to deny anyone's claim that he's the Messiah. 
because he hasn't waited for them to ask that specific question. Rather, he confesses it up front, cutting right to the chase. I am not the Christ. And let's remember, so we started the series in John chapter 20 toward the end of the Gospel account in which John says the reason why he's writing these things is so that his readers, who again, I put forward, these are spiritually seeking Greeks and Jews. So spiritually seeking Jewish and Greek readers. He's writing so that they might believe that the Christ is Jesus. That this figure that the Old Testament points forward to is Jesus. And so now, here in in verse 20, this is the first time that John the author uses this word. The Christ. So the whole purpose is to tell us that the Christ is Jesus. Here we're introduced to the word for the first time, and it's in the context of John the Baptist saying, yeah, I'm not him. The Christ is not me. But why are these first century religious leaders so interested in the question to begin with, and how does John know what they're after? Like, how does he know that um, he can kind of just cut to the chase in the way that he does? And the answer to both of those questions is that in first century Palestine, messianic expectation is intense, to say the least. Okay? There's a shared belief among first century Jews that the Messiah would come soon to establish his kingdom. There have been many people up to this point who have claimed falsely to be that Messiah, to be the Christ, to be the one the Old Testament points to. Do you remember at Easter I, I quoted the New Testament author, um, New Testament scholar Andreas Kostenberger on this? And it's a memorable quote. You might remember. Jerusalem, he says, Jerusalem during the ministry of Jesus. Jerusalem was a powder keg ready for a spark, filled to the brim with both messianic expectation and the hatred of Roman rule. Right? So this filled to the brim with both messianic expectation, hatred of Roman rule, and this is an explosive recipe during this time. And it's here that you have this man, John the Baptist. And what's he doing? He's wearing clothing that brought to mind the kinds of clothes that the prophets wore. He's eating a diet that brought to mind the way that a prophet might eat. He's baptizing in a manner that differed from how first century readers practiced, first century leaders practiced purification. And so the question arises, who are you? He knows what they're asking. It's not him. (laughs) He's not me, right? Okay, he's not claiming to be the Messiah. So So what's interesting is they don't say, well, that's not what we were asking. They just make their way down the list. Got a list. They just keep going. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. A couple things here. First, okay, why do they ask him if he's Elijah? What does that mean? Uh, well, it's, not an un- it's actually not an unreasonable question. God makes this promise to the prophet Malachi. This is what he says. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So here you have John the Baptist dressing very much like Elijah. In fact, you can go into various Old Testament descriptions of Elijah and New Testament descriptions of how John dressed and you see a ton of similarity. We just don't have time. But you can do that. right? So you have John dressed very much like Elijah telling everyone to repent, which is the ministry of Elijah. And so John the Baptist, is he claiming to be this one? It's not an unreasonable question. That God promised to send, and John says, I am not. I am not. And it's here that we, okay, let's just step aside for a minute. We need to have an important conversation about a 
I guess you could call it a side theme, but I also think it's more important than, it's not just an aside you know, uh, through the gospel accounts. We'll come back to this again and again because actually, John appears to be unaware on this point. He appears to have some missing information here. Later on, Jesus himself will say this, and he says this across all the synoptics, Matthew, Luke, and Mark. He says, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John the Baptist, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Let me just clarify. When I say John seems unaware, I do not mean John the author. I mean John the Baptist. He seems unaware so, because he says he's not this person. And so we, we might say, time out. If John the Baptist actually was the promised return of Elijah who would come, that's what Jesus says. That he was the promised return of Elijah who would come and point to the one who reconciles all things in himself. If this is actually the ministry, talking about the ministry of John the Baptist, at least in part, then why does John deny it? And I think the best explanation is, the reason is because while John the Baptist, to his credit, does appear to understand that you know, the reason he was born, the reason he was put on this planet was to be a forerunner to the ministry of Jesus. I mean, like in a minute, he's going to say that in no uncertain terms that Isaiah chapter 40 is talking about him, you know, and his ministry. But he still doesn't understand the full significance of what's taking place. He doesn't make the connection. And I don't say that to discredit John the Baptist. You don't have to make that decision. This is important to understand. Like this is the reason I bring this up a lot at Gospel Life is because this helps us read our Bibles. It helps us understand how to read across the scriptures. You know, like John is recording narrative. Different genres play different purposes. You can't read Proverbs like you read the book of Romans. You know? You can't read Romans like you read the Gospel according to John, right? So John's recording a narrative. What's that mean? Well, he's describing events that took place. He's describing John's responses. He's not prescribing through John's words exactly what Christians should think about everything he says. And we'll see more evidence of that in chapter 11 when John the Baptist seems to grow impatient with Jesus' ministry. So there's more evidence to come. We need to understand all the disciples who walk with Jesus, listen, they're given front row seats. Like I'm, I'm not disparaging anyone here. The disciples are given front row seats throughout the Scriptures to Jesus telling them the reason that He came and what He had to do over and over and over again. And they still never make the connection. And they're surprised by the cross. And they're even more surprised by the resurrection. Despite the fact that at times Jesus himself is pretty explicit about these things. And you know, we can read a couple of different ways, right? We can read, on the one hand, we can read it and we have a hard time hearing that because we want to read in ways that make the men in the Scriptures the heroes of the story, right? So it's really hard for us to read the Bible and it's like, wait a minute, you're saying Abraham... Made mistakes? Yeah, yeah, he did. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they, they failed a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah, they did, right? The disciples, they didn't understand everything. That's correct. That's correct, right? So, one hand, we don't like to think along those lines. On the other hand, I think we, we read the Scriptures and we say, what's wrong with those disciples? How did they not get it? And I, I need, to, need us to understand, if we were living during this time, and Jesus called us, selected us out by grace to follow him and join this discipleship, we also would not have understood. Right? Why? Like, they don't get it, and that's okay. Because that's why Jesus needed to come. 
You know, we didn't understand. We didn't comprehend the things of God. John has just showed us that. The light came into the world and the darkness did not comprehend it. Natural man cannot understand the things of God. So we didn't understand and we need these gospel accounts that declare the events of the gospel so that through the Spirit revealing Him to us, we can see and understand the truth of who He is and what He has come to do for us. But John, while he understands a lot, he just doesn't understand the full scope. He doesn't make every connection. doesn't connect every dot. So they continue down the list. Are you the prophet? This is likely referring to Deuteronomy 18 in which we read Moses saying this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses. A prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And the Lord said to me, Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. Okay, so this prophet like Moses understood in a variety of ways in the first century. But really, in the first century, what we come to find is that this is understood through the lens of messianic expectation. In some way, whether the prophet himself is directly the Christ, or the prophet himself points to the Christ, there's this messianic expectation idea. And and I think as we go into Deuteronomy, it is messianic. The prophet that it's speaking about is Christ. So, in fact, in, in chapter 34, final chapter of Deuteronomy, chapter 34 of Deuteronomy, final chapter of the book, the last verses of that final chapter, the very last verses of the Pentateuch, actually. So that, remember, when we preached through Genesis, we would say the first five books of the Bible were known as the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy written as a unit, as one unit, okay? So here's the last verses of the first five books of the Bible, of that Pentateuch. And in those verses, we, we read a curious statement that I think helps us understand, well, our Bibles, but helps us understand the messianic fervor of the day. It says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do. I would argue. Okay, so this is the majority position. It's not like it's controversial. Moses didn't write these closing words in Deuteronomy. The previous section describes his death, right? So he just died in pretty great detail. It describes his death. So while I think Moses was primarily the author of the, the primary author of the Pentateuch, we need to understand that authorship in the ancient Near East often meant compiling tradition and resources as well as sharing one's firsthand experience. But, but here at the end, after his death, someone has included these remarks. We read that while the Lord promised to raise up a prophet like Moses, listen to the language again. It's, it's truly interesting. There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. But, but I mean, if our understanding is this was written right following the events of Moses' death, seems a bit odd, you know, uh, I mean, talk about impatient, it's been what, like three weeks, and we read, there has not arisen a prophet in Israel since, in all of these days, right, um, so, so what are you expecting exactly? Well, I, this is why many scholars, including the late great John Salheimer in his book, The Meaning of the Pentateuch, which I commend to you, argue that here you see the work of a later editor by the Spirit of God at work in him, Spirit of God working in the same way as he does throughout all human authorship. Perhaps even a compiler of the entire Old Testament text with, 
which the first century readers would then be familiar. And it's with that vantage point, on the brink of Jesus Himself entering into human history, that He shares the words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. And what does that mean? So the idea is you get to the end of the biblical text. No prophets arrived yet. And God's people sit with that for hundreds of years. They sit with this reality. There has not arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses. There has not arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses. What does it mean? It means the people are eager for this prophet to finally come. And so they ask John, are you the prophet? And he just says, no. And now they're getting frustrated, I think, because they realize they can't return to the Sanhedrin completely empty-handed, these priests and Levites, and come back. What did he say? He said no you know, to everything. So they cut to the chase. What do you, what do you say to him? Oh, so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? They're getting nervous that John's being a bit intentionally cagey with them. He's not going to be straightforward in terms of who he really is, but that is not the case. That's far from the case. Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. In terms of John's identity, it's true he doesn't grasp everything as evidenced by his denial that he's the promised Elijah that would come to declare repentance, point people to the ultimate reconciler. But he does grasp his role entirely as a forerunner to the one God promised to send, the Christ, the Messiah. Because he points back to Isaiah 40 and he says essentially, this was talking about me. This is the reason I've been put on this earth. Like this, Isaiah 40, it's about, it's about me. This is who I am. And when you go back to Isaiah 40 and you read this text, in the context there in Isaiah 40, what you find is Isaiah crying out for a clear path, a clear roadway to the east that essentially levels off the mountains and allows just this easy pathway headed east. Why? Well, this is to signify the return of God's people from exile, making their way from Babylon back to Israel again via this straight and so there's this good news for God's people starting in Isaiah 40 that really continues on through Isaiah of God's people being redeemed out of Babylonian exile, brought back into God's presence in the land of Israel, in Jerusalem. God's presence being with them via this rebuilt temple. But all of that ultimately points forward to the true and better release from exile. The true and better path out of Babylon. That's what John's saying. Like I'm, I'm pointing to the, to the true and better path. The path that will release you from our ultimate exile, our ultimate problem that separates us from God's presence. A true and better Jerusalem. A true and better temple in which there's once for all mediation between God and man to deal with that problem that we all have. It all points to Jesus. And so now John says, that voice in Isaiah 40, it wasn't simply or even primarily about God's people leaving exile and returning to the land during the time of the prophet. But it was ultimately, in a truer and better sense, about God's people leaving Babylonian uh, exile in their hearts. Leaving the ultimate Babylonian exile. A much more insidious and central separation from God by pointing them to the One who came to save them. And John's saying essentially, like, listen, I can't be the voice that points people to the One who came to save them if they think they don't need to be saved. And so I have to call them to repent. Repent. 
I do this baptism of repentance, right? Because people won't hear about a Savior unless they realize that they need saving. And that's what leads us to the next question. Because the underlying question of identity ultimately points to Jesus. And that's what brings us to the question underneath even that question. Because what this is all really about for them is a question of authority. Starting in verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. So stop there real quick. I told you sent from the Sanhedrin. I'm not going to be able to get into like all of the various religious leaders of the day. Okay. Um, I'll do a little bit of that now and a little bit as we move forward here. I don't think this verse is actually saying that all the whole delegation is sent to the bidding of the Pharisees, mostly because the Pharisees wouldn't have had that kind of power or control over the temple and the priests. There was a little bit of um, discontinuity there. So I think it's saying that there are Pharisees in this delegation who've been sent by other Pharisees to ask this question, speak on behalf of the Pharisees. And the reason we need to spend some time here, the reason that's worth pointing out, is because understanding who the Pharisees are really helps us understand why they're so interested in asking these questions, and really what their central problem is. Okay? The Pharisees began as a Reformation movement, an opposition group who rightly opposed the rule of someone who is arguably one of the cruelest tyrants in all of history, not just Jewish history, Antiochus Epiphanes. You know, when, when, when we were preaching through Revelation, so it might sound familiar to you, when we were preaching through Revelation, I mentioned... Paul Burr also mentioned Antiochus. Because I argued that much of this Antichrist language in Revelation, as well as the three and a half years, the 42 months, 1260 days, if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to Revelation. But I, I said, they're all likely referring to this time in which the Lord's people are under this cruel reign of Antiochus about 300 years before Christ comes. Antiochus wanted to completely annihilate Judaism, essentially. He wanted to change Judaism in such a way as to erode every last part that made it distinctly Jewish. He, he wanted to make himself the priest who could offer unholy sacrifice in the temple as a way that would position him as a false authority over God's people and lead them into wickedness. But there was an opposition group that rose up against him that rightly and successfully opposed him, what did they do? Well, they, they established an oral tradition that would focus on catechizing young men and women to remember and keep the law. You know, and in this sense, in this sense, all right, it could very well be argued that the Pharisees have a noble beginning point as a reformation to bring God's people back to the law again, to remember the law again, rather than allowing Antiochus to completely alter it into obliteration. And yet what they become as the years transpire is a group that would then alter the rules for themselves in a way that came to value the entailments of the law culturally more than what the law itself pointed them to, more than what it revealed to them. Right. They would become a group that would declare a false authority over God's people when they began as a group to stop a false authority over God's people. They kind of become what they initially hate. Why? They forgot the good news of their redemption that the law would point them forward to. They forgot they needed redemption. This crying out that certainly God's people exhibited throughout this time is absent by the time you get to Christ. So what started 
as a good and right reformation back to the law so that God's people would remember it, turns into a moralistic focus on certain entailments of the law. And we need to hear this because the same thing can be true today. It starts insidiously. There's a missiologist, I've talked about this before in some length, but there's a missiologist named Paul Hebert, served as a professor of missions at Trinity, my alma mater. And he would commonly point back to his own tradition to illustrate this problem and really to warn evangelicals like, sure, yeah, this happens to people in the scriptures. Good reformations turn over time into man-centered desire for control. But listen, you need to understand it can happen to us. Right, So, he's from the Mennonite tradition. It had really fizzled out across the United States. And he says, essentially, so the first generation of Mennonites, like, he wanted to kind of get at the root, what happened here? How did this tradition just fizzle out? How did many from within this Mennonite tradition actually walk away and abandon gospel mooring? He said, essentially, well, here's what happened. The first generation of Mennonites believed the gospel of Jesus Christ believed the sheer grace of Christ, and they also believed that when you actually believe the gospel, it fundamentally transforms the way we live. Like, you can't claim gospel belief and then live however you want. Gospel belief changes the way that we live. If our focus was actually on the gospel, it would change the way we approach the surrounding world. Right? There are various gospel implications that as we preach the gospel primarily, start to, we start to see happening around us. Like our hearts will be changed to care about things that we didn't see before. Right? So the first generation of Mennonites believed this. They believed the gospel. They declared the gospel to one another. And they believe it came with these implications. The next generation came along and assumed the gospel. And they focused mostly on the, these implications or entailments. So the idea is... They equated the gospel with that thing. Yeah, it's the thing that non-believers need to hear. They equated the gospel with outreach. The gospel became synonymous with like, non-believers need the gospel. So, but the gospel got me into the kingdom. Now the way that I make progress in the kingdom is by my own hard work and effort with the stuff. Right? So they kind of assumed the gospel. That's not for church people. And they focused primarily on the stuff. You know, They believed the gospel. They just didn't declare it to one another because it's like, why do we need it? We already know it. And we already believe it. So let's focus on the stuff. All right? The next generation that came after them, third generation, actually denied the gospel. And all that was left was the focus on the stuff. And you know, it's easy. This is where I think it is important for us to step back and really reflect what's happening in our own hearts. Because it's easy to look at gospel-denying churches and say, what's wrong with those people? Right? And certainly, we should guard our churches from gospel denial. But it's easy to throw that stone without recognizing how that happened to start with. Like, what did we expect? They, they hadn't really been told the gospel or why it mattered because their parents just assumed it and didn't understand the way that it shaped, shaped their children's hearts. The reason the gospel itself was vital for them to hear over and over again. And so it shouldn't really surprise us, nor should it really have surprised their parents that they would then say, yeah, you know, we don't, turns out we don't need that. Because I, I still do this kind of thing from time to time. I see myself as a good person. So why do I need the gospel for that? I just don't need that. So they denied it. Because it was assumed the generation before. And so 
there is a real warning sign because you're only a generation away from gospel belief to gospel denial, you know? Gospel belief to assumption, and then it's denied from grandparent to grandchild. Uh, and so, of course, the final generation left the church. They left the church because, listen, if the focus is on certain cultural entailments of gospel while denying the gospel itself, why on earth would I need to get up early on a Sunday and sing and pray and hear some local buffoon talk about the Bible that doesn't really mean anything anyways, you know, you know, like to, to, to someone who's hearing that. And so I can join any number of charities or organizations that value various uh, good things that I find, you know, that I find pleasing to me. So I can go do that. I don't even need to be a part of a church. And the warning for us in the text is real because here the Pharisees have gone from believing that the law is needed to be remembered so that God's people can maintain their identity as those who are dependent on Him for all things. Really. To those, even, under the, even under circumstances like the cruel reign of Antiochus, to those who assumed the need for redemption and focused primarily on the entailments over time, primarily on the outward workings of the law, to Jesus' day when they appear to not really understand that they actually need to be redeemed at all. And that's what Jesus continues to speak into. They don't appear to understand that they need redemption. Like in their own hearts. To them, redemption means save us from those evil, wicked Romans. It's not something that's happening here. They've forgotten the purpose of the law entirely. The Reformation has turned into a group primarily interested in maintaining cultural control. They're more interested in their rights that they think they have to maintain power and control than in proclaiming the truth of God. And that's evidenced in the question under the question because some of you are like, how do you get this from this parenthetical verse? Look here. Verse 25. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet. In other words, kind of like the Michael Scott to Toby here, their list of questions essentially are, who do you think you are and what gives you the rights? You know, uh, their issue is they don't like the guy. And they don't like the guy because he's operating outside of their authority. They don't, they don't like that he's gone ahead with this ministry of baptism without checking with them first because they're the ones who have the power and the control. How could this wild man from the wilderness go out and just do this baptism ministry outside of their purview? And I'm not suggesting that there's not an authority structure from within the life of God's people that's been implemented there by God for our protection. Of course there has been. But John doesn't respond to this by saying, well, of course I'm doing that because I have every right. Because look at me, because I have the authority. You know, and you can't take that authority from me. John actually diminishes his authority. His, his response is not to inflate himself. It's the opposite. His response is not to inflate his own authority, but to rather show the degree to which his authority is found in the authority of another. What's the degree to which that happens? Verses 26 and 27. Look. John answered them. I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John says, listen, you're right, you're right. I don't have the authority to baptize on my own accord. But there's one among you who you don't recognize, and I'm going to talk about what that means in a minute, who you don't recognize, okay, who actually has the authority. In fact, he has all authority, whether you like it or not, and you don't, but he does. And I, I give everything. I give everything 
for him. This phrase, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie, is particularly compelling and helpful for us to understand what's being said here because there was a first century rabbinic saying. It was an expression the same way that we all have expressions today. It's a first century rabbinic expression here that a disciple would do everything for his rabbi except for untie the straps of his sandal. It was kind of a joke. It was kind of a way of like, a, a joke that was retold a lot, a way of actually saying how much a student would do for his rabbi, how much a student would go above and beyond for his rabbi, that he would do everything, everything except unstrap his sandal. He'd be so submissive to the authority of the rabbi that he would only stop short of what, culturally speaking, was considered one of the most demeaning tasks of the time. I think there are cultural corollaries. I'm not going to say them because I think they're too crass for the pulpit. Uh, but that's the idea. It's like something that is demeaning and beneath you, but it's like, oh yeah, a disciple of a rabbi would do everything for the rabbi short of that most demeaning task. And John says, you guys need to understand. I'm not even worthy to do that most demeaning task. But he has the authority to tell me to do anything. All authority comes from him by virtue of who he is. That's John's whole point here. And this next short sentence telling us that these things happen in Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, that's different from the Bethany where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Okay, It's on the other side is the beginning point in which we start to see. It's John's way of saying, Jesus' authority, Jesus' authority, it's all-encompassing. It doesn't just land in one subgroup of Jewish people in one location during this time. It's everywhere. And it's over everyone. Okay. As Osborne helpfully sums up for us here, he says there's a double meaning here. On one level, they have seen Jesus and not recognized who He was. But on a deeper level, this is an allusion back to chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, where we were a couple weeks ago, where not knowing signifies one they've rejected and do not want to know. Do you remember? So, He came to the world. The world did not know Him. He came to His own, but His own did not receive Him. Right? We, we couldn't understand. We couldn't comprehend Him. This is what's happening here. You don't know Him. Not knowing signifies you've rejected. You do not want to know. So, Osborne continues, they believe they're taking the high road as religious experts, but John is in effect telling them they're part of the world and do indeed need the baptism of repentance. All right, so it's like taking the high road as religious experts, thinking that they have some kind of authority that John doesn't have, setting themselves apart from everybody else. Look, we're up here. We have the authority. Everyone else is down here. And John's like, you don't even know what's the system you belong to. The order you belong to is this world, which if you remember John's definition of world as we go forward, it's this created order in active rebellion against its creator, especially among humanity. And John's saying, this is the part, this is the system, this is the order that the Pharisees actually belong to. They have their order wrong. And so they need to realize their need for Christ. They need to realize their need for repentance. In other words, the Pharisees need to understand again that their need is just as great as everyone else's. And there are so many ways that we need this reminder in Western Christendom. Evangelicalism began as a good and godly movement back to historically Orthodox Christian faith. A people who with one voice didn't decide to change. Like sometimes you'll hear, be real careful when reading popular works defining evangelicalism. 
Because often what you'll find is, oh, well, evangelical theology doesn't come along until like the 1900s, 18, 1900s. American evangelicalism comes along, and it's this totally unique, different thing. You know, so you'll, you'll get this take on evangelicalism that it actually, it's not true. Evangelicalism didn't come along and have some radical departure from how the Bible had been read for 2,000 years. Quite the opposite. The radical departure was happening in churches and in communities who decided that they knew better than what the Word said. And evangelicals came along and they said, with one voice, we believe that this is God's Word. Right? We believe that as the verbally inspired Word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of His will for salvation, the ultimate authority by which um, all of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it's to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, trusted in all that it promises, because this is the Word of the Lord, and it points us to the Gospel. And so Jesus saves uniquely, but it's the Jesus revealed on the pages of the Scripture, and that is in keeping with church history. This is historically Orthodox Christianity. So it wasn't some reformation away. You get somehow to the 1900s, and evangelicalism takes us away from historically Orthodox Christianity. It's a reformation back Okay, so a good and godly movement. And we need to hear that over and over again, right? Why? Because we also need to hear that over time, we can take this good and godly movement of reformation back to what Christians have always believed about Christ, back to what the Scriptures say, back to granting all authority to Christ and turn it into a movement over time that refuses to lay down our rights for the sake of the Gospel in these Scriptures we proclaim. We can be tempted to create a movement that's based primarily on leveraging cultural power rather than proclaiming a message that is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. We can forget, we can so easily forget, like, what was the Apostle Paul's posture when he comes to Corinth? Does he come full of the might of his own power, his ability to lead, his, he comes with fear? Much trembling. His voice is shaking as he speaks. He's got the gift of teaching, but not because he's particularly compelling. In fact, he says, I don't have wise words of wisdom. Why are people drawn to the message? The power of Christ. The Spirit of God at work in what He says. Showing people this is the power of the cross and the power of the Spirit at work in what it is that He tells us. We can be tempted to easily grant ourselves the authority that only Jesus is given. Likewise, and we need to hear this as well, we can decide, we can be tempted to decide that, you know, evangelicalism doesn't have to mean a return to God's Word anymore. Over time, we can forget the Word. We can start to define evangelicalism with certain cultural entailments that fit from within a progressive, our, our progressive view while assuming or forgetting the Gospel. And in the meantime, we can really start to actually not so subtly attempt to change what the Word of God says about a whole host of things with which our culture disagrees. And in doing that, we grant ourselves the authority that's only given in Jesus. You know, and I think that's because, let's be honest about what John claims here and how the human heart tends to react to it. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Like, For so many of us, it's easy to grant Jesus some authority. Right? For, as humans, 
Here's our struggle. It's easy to grant Jesus maybe even an awful lot of authority, but man, those authorities have limits. Sometimes, right? They're sandals that we don't want to touch. They're things that we don't want to do. You know? So it's like all the way, sure, I'll, I'll grant Jesus authority all the way up to a point. And then at that point, and you know, various Various aspects of culture, various positions, various places in which you might find yourself in the culture struggle in different ways to grant authority. Like, there are some, you know, it is really important to talk about specific application in church life. You know, like specific application in terms of how we obey Christ together here. Um, One particular area in which we decreasingly give over our authority to Christ in Western culture as Christians is in the arena of politics, right? On the one hand, we want to take a stand for truth in the world. And that's good. And that's godly. And we should, especially now, stand for truth. I'm not telling you not to be involved in politics. Pastorally, I think Christians need to be more involved in politics. I do. I do think taking a stand for truth is important. But I often think that the sandal we don't want to touch in evangelicalism has to do with the way we talk about politics. The way we have these conversations. Because the gospel doesn't just form our beliefs, the gospel forms our tone. Fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And there are ways that we as as Christians can talk about things that are true and good and that we should be talking about, but in ways that actively push away non-believing people, that actively make those who stand apart from Christ less likely to have a gospel hearing in ways that I think actively break what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 9, because, our, because of the way we talk about these things, because of the manner in which we engage them. And so we can very easily like, but this is my right. This is my, you know, what does Paul say? When it comes to preferences and rights, lay them down for the sake of the gospel. And that's often not a sandal that we want to touch. It's like, God, yeah, his authority all the way up to a point, but if it interferes with my ability to engage in this way, then no. But on the other hand, it's like there's a way we can talk about politics where I'm just not going to be involved at all in the surrounding world. You know? And sure, this is what... (laughs) These are things that, on the one hand, the Gospel does shape the way that I believe in a number of ways, but when I hear Jesus talking about marriage, when I hear Jesus talking about life, when I hear that he's the author of life, that's a sandal that I'm not willing to touch. So we come and like, either we're not letting the gospel shape our beliefs, or we're not letting the gospel shape the way that we present these beliefs to a fallen world. And both of these can oftentimes be places where it's like authority, but not necessarily all the way down. Right? But John here declares to us this, and this is the central theme of the text. 
By virtue of who he is, Jesus holds all authority for Christian life and practice. Where does my authority come from? It comes from Jesus. Why? Because by virtue of who he is. The fact that he came before me. In other words, if Jesus is standing there, risen from the dead, if he is who he says he is, if he did what he said he did, if he accomplished for us what he says he accomplished, if we are who he says we are apart from him, then we must yield to him entirely. And his gospel must be our primary focus because then the gospel is our primary focus. This is what does this work in us. We can both declare, apart from Christ, I'm more sinful than I ever would have wanted to say. I ever would have wanted to think or imagine, which should make me humble. But on the other hand, I'm, I'm more loved in Jesus because of what he's done on the cross than I could have ever imagined possible. And so because of that, I can be bold as a witness in this world. It's both. It shapes me. And this is why we come to the table weekly, because we need this weekly reminder of His grace at work in our lives. We need this weekly reminder of our sin. Like, why do we need to come to a table? Our sin separates us from God and makes it so that if we try to be our own authority, everything is broken. That's what happened in the garden. All of us together with Adam, sin in the garden. We attempt our own authority over God's authority and everything is in destruction, and yet God doesn't allow us to sit in this destruction, but instead comes and bears the destruction at the cross on Himself in the person of Jesus that we might know Him. Because of our sin, we need the table. Because of God's grace, He offers us His body broken and His blood shed that we might know Christ and be changed, be transformed to live differently in this world. I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful for how GLC has approached this with one another. Like the last six years has been so life giving for me because at Gospel Life Church, I've been, I've been so encouraged to see people engaging one another shaped by this gospel that we proclaim weekly. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we do proclaim it to one another weekly. This is a sweet time together in which we do share with one another the riches of God's grace for us. And so if you're a believer, I invite you forward now. Come and take these elements with you back to your seats and we will partake of them together and proclaim the gospel together.